The head of NASA's New Horizons mission tells us how precise their itinerary has been in sending a space probe billions of miles into space. Flying from Pluto to Ultima Thule, which took three and a half years, at 32,000 miles an hour, about a million miles almost every day, we ended up arriving at Ultima Thule only 23 seconds off the predicted time. Interplanetary influences are at work on some of the gnarliest tides around the world. I thought the Bay of Fundy had the largest tide in the world, but it turns out that there is one other place, and it is Ungava Bay. London is one of the truly great cities on Earth. They know how to calm its urban atmosphere by doing a great job with their gardens and parks. 47% of London's area is green space, and we have 3,000 gardens. High tides, far out travels, and the gardens of London. It's all just ahead on Travel with Rick Steves. Come along. We're exploring the farthest destination mankind has ever photographed on today's Travel with Rick Steves. In just a bit, the head of NASA's New Horizons mission tells us about its close-ups of Pluto, and now more than a billion miles beyond as it continues into the edges of our solar system. And later in the hour, we'll get down to Earth with advice for enjoying the best of London's lovely gardens and botanical parks. Living where the salt water hits the land like I do, you grow up with the tide. Tides in, tides out, let's go clamming. Tides slack, we can get our boat through the narrows. There's a lot more to tides than that. And marine conservationist Jonathan White has spent decades studying the tide. He calls the relationship between ocean and moon a celestial dance. His book is called Tides, the Science and Spirit of the Ocean. And Jonathan joins us in our studio right now to take us to the largest, the fastest, the scariest, and the most amazing tides in the world, from the Arctic to the Mediterranean. Jonathan, thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me, Rick. I just love this idea of paying attention to tides. And you've got this fascination with tides, and you've put that into this great book, when you think about traveling, what's an example of an unforgettable experience you could have that's relating to the tide? <laughs> so many, really. Uh, in one case, I actually traveled all over the world for this. In one case, I went up to the Canadian Arctic and uh, spent some time up there where they have very large tides. In fact, some of the largest in the world. Now, we're talking Hudson's Bay, this area? Yeah, exactly. A place called Angava Bay, which is about 1,200 miles north of Montreal, Canada. Okay. Yeah. And, uh, in fact, it's about 1,500 miles north of the Bay of Fundy, which also has a record tide of 54 feet 6 inches. And when I first started um, studying this, I thought the Bay of Fundy had the largest tide in the world. But it turns out that there is one <laughs> other place, and it is Angava Bay near Hudson Strait that has exactly the same record tie, 54 feet, 6 inches. So the tide, just in a nutshell, there's gravitational force by the sun and the moon and celestial bodies, and they pull water because water is not solid like land, so that that can be pulled by this gravitational force depending on how things line up in the sky. Yes. So it can be a more powerful lineup or it can be a weaker lineup, but we're talking something beyond that when we talk the Bay of Fundy or a 50-foot tide that's much different than the tide we have here in Seattle or somebody would have in New York City. That's right, exactly. I mean, here we have a 10, 11, sometimes a 12-foot tide. Right. And, and again, the Bay of Fundy is just extraordinary. What? It's not only the largest in the world, it's the largest by 10 feet. 
And that's right. because of the shape of the bay, basically? Yeah, it has a what they call a resonant quality that is extraordinary. It's perfectly aligned to the signals of the sun and the moon. Okay. And, um, so you went way up into the high Arctic here, way, way north in Canada, Hudson Bay, and you hung out with the local Inuit natives. Why did you go up there and what did you learn? Well, I went up there the first time just because it was a record tide. And I went to a little place called Kangasuiak, and it's got uh, 150 people up there. It's an Inuit village. It borders Ungava Bay, and there's 13 other small communities there. And I, I actually just went up there like I did in a lot of cases because um, I couldn't find out enough about the place just on Internet. And finally, I just had to put my backpack on and just go and see what was there. In fact, I did that with a lot of the places I went to. And, uh, and I overheard an Inuit elder while I was up there talking about going underneath the ice in the hollow regions below the ice when the tide was out in search of blue mussels oh, in the wintertime. Oh, so when the tide goes out, the ice doesn't go out because it's solid. That's right. I never thought of that. So it becomes hollow underneath the ice. And you better know your tidal charts or you're going to have a short vacation. It, <laughs> Exactly. And it was quite an experience. It's a broken up ice that makes this possible because it's the ice goes up with the tide and right. it comes down and it's crumpled all oh, in gotcha. the intertidal zone, right? I gotcha. So what these people do is they use this long steel rod called a torque and they chop a hole right. in the three foot thick ice and they they drop down below there in the tent-like cavities when the tide's out. And it's dark and And do they warm. do this for kicks or do they do it to harvest? They do it to harvest fresh blue mussels. And before white contact, European contact up there, it was the way that they got food during the wintertime. And it's warm under there? Yeah, it could be minus 5, 10, 15 degrees on the top. Yeah. And it's probably 40 degrees Fahrenheit down and, below. And it's hard for us to imagine because most people live with a 5 or 10-foot tide. This is a 50-foot tide. We're yeah. talking 50-foot vertical, not 50-foot yes. the water goes out, but 50-foot right. in depth. Yeah. So you could conceivably have a roof of ice above you, 30 feet above you. That's right. That's and you're right. walking around there just going, hot dog, there's muscles everywhere. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And now, how do they, do they lower down by a rope? Well, a rope ladder in this case. And actually, he jumped down. I actually crawled down. He created some steps in his So hole. that's making a positive out of a, of a freakishly low tide. Sailor, surfer, and marine conservationist Jonathan White is our guest on Travel with Rick Steves. He's studied the impacts of tides around the world and shares the mysteries nature has shown him in his book, Tides, the Science and Spirit of the Ocean. His website is jonathanwhitewriter.com. I was in <laughs> southern England in Cornwall, and the tide went out so far that the entire, in fact, you've got a photograph of it in your book. The tide goes out so far that, you know, you've got your, your rock fortification for the harbor and everything. And the boats are all sitting on the mud. And they actually have these little supports dug into the mud where they, the boat actually leans on the support when the tide goes out so it doesn't just fall over. And then the tide comes in and they float again. But a huge tide can cause problems or it can be a blessing depending on how you anticipate it and how you use it. Yeah, exactly. Um, in fact, all over the United Kingdom and other places in the world, um, not many, 
they build their boats so that they can set down on the tide. They usually have a split keel, so they sit, okay. they can settle. So Whereas, if they live in a, if they if they sail in an area where there is a yeah. deep tide, that's why you see some boats with two keels. That's and right. It gives them a, like a tripod almost. That's to right. Sit on. They sit like landing craft. Yeah. And they, and they're designed to do ah. that with the tide. But up here where we it. live, you we don't do that. We have a single keel. It's more like a wine glass, and it would flip over. Now that it, that little place I was talking about, where they had the boats that anticipated the low tide, that was near St. Michael's Mount, which uh-huh. is directly across from Mont Saint Michel, yes. which has one of the most famous tides anywhere. Yeah. Talk a little bit about that, because at Mont Saint Michel, we're tying in an abbey and a spiritual pilgrimage almost with a sea of mud yeah. at low tide. Right. And they say, in fact, I saw it, when the tide is out there on during a large tide, meaning on high highs and low lows, right. when the tide is out, you can't see the ocean. No. It's 10 miles away. And in fact, all over these mud flats, in a lot of cases, they're quicksand yeah. and uh, quite dangerous to walk around in if you're not experienced. And with they that say, sort of I love the notion that they say, quote, the sea comes in like galloping horses. <laughs> That's right. Can you imagine that? Yeah. It comes in like galloping horses. That must be in part because the land is almost flat, you know, so that a one-inch rise, it goes a lot farther in. That's right. Very, very flat, but very gently tilted, and then the sea will literally come in with the speed of a galloping horse. And you've got these people that, oh, the, the tide's so let's just walk across the bay instead of walking around the bay. Yeah, exactly. And they can, they can be overrun by the galloping horses of the incoming tide, or they can hit some quicksand. Yeah. And as you know, there, I mean, this was a spiritual destination place for oh, yeah. centuries and centuries. And they say that people walked all the way across Europe to get here. And the most dangerous part of their journey was that last mile because they weren't familiar with the tides. And yeah. they'd go out and they'd be swept away. They've got a causeway. They rebuilt it. They rebuilt it. So now To it's honor the coming exactly. and going of the environment. It's, it's open so the tide can come and go. Beautiful. And if you know a little bit about the tide, you can tie it into the history and the spirituality of a great destination like Mont Saint-Michel. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jonathan White. Jonathan's book is Tides, the Science and Spirit of the Ocean. Jonathan, let's talk a little more about sightseeing with tides. I've been in England where they have a tidal bore. It's like a a wave that goes for miles and miles and miles down or up the river, and people surf on it, actually. What do you know about tidal bores, and do they happen in different places around the world? Yes, they do. In fact, there are over a hundred tidal bores and counting around the world, many, many more than I thought. And the tidal bore is really a tide going upriver in the form of a wave or a solid wall of water. And you could surf it as people you can do. surf it. The and Severn they... River uh, near where Wales hits England on the south there. That's right. You can ride that wave for miles up the river if the tide's right. Exactly. And there's a surf contest on the Amazon River that gets up to 15-foot wave. The Amazon has a 15-foot tidal bore? That's right. That can be seen and felt about 500 miles up that river. You write about one in China also, the Silver Dragon. Yeah. So that is the largest in the world, the one on the Chentong River, which is just south of Shanghai near Hangzhou. And that tidal bore they surf as well. But it's the largest in the world. It gets up to 25 feet tall. And it comes in on every tide twice a day, and has done that for 2,500 years. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Jonathan White. He's my title tour guide right now. And Jonathan, <laughs> if you were a magical tour guide and you could just snap your fingers and take me anywhere in the world at any time, and you wanted to show me the three or four most amazing tidal experiences and sights, where would you take me? 
Well, I'd take you below the ice in the Arctic. Yes, I'm signed <laughs> to up. To experience that. And I'd take you to the Chentong Tidal Bore to see that close up. I went down in the river during and low I can tide. surf. I'll just, I'll just yeah. jump on your back. I'll, we'll piggyback <laughs> exactly. surf. Exactly. And locally, there's lots of places here around the Northwest. In fact, the Northwest Coast, particularly British Columbia, has some of the fastest tidal currents in the world. Is that why when I was boating as a kid up in the Gulf Islands of British Columbia, we always had to have the tidal charts out to get through this hole in the wall or the Yucata, Yucata, yeah, these rapids. Mm -hmm. And I mean, if you hit it at slack tide, you could roll across it in a dinghy. But if you hit it at the wrong time, you'd need a speedboat to get through it. That's right, exactly. There's a, Nakwakto is the largest for fastest moving tide current on our coast, and it's up just on the north tip of Vancouver Island on the mainland side. And But you're exactly right. There's hundreds of narrow, fast-moving, class 5 rapid tidal zones on the coast. As you call it in your book, it's a celestial dance between the ocean and the moon. And when you can understand what's happening, you can be in the right place at the right time and add another dimension to your trip. That's right. Jonathan White, thanks for joining us, and uh, thanks for writing Tides, the Science and Spirit of the Ocean. Thanks, Rick. It's a pleasure being here. We'll explore some of London's finest gardens in just a bit. Back on New Year's Day, did you see those pictures of that space rock that looks kind of like a flattened snowman? Well, that's what the New Horizons space mission has been exploring as it ventures into the outer edges of our solar system. The head of the New Horizons project tells us about their discoveries from billions of miles in outer space. That's next on Travel with Rick Steves. It's explored the farthest worlds in history. At last report, the New Horizons spacecraft was still sailing through space at more than 30,000 miles an hour and more than 3 billion miles from Earth. Its mission has given us the first close-up look at the dwarf planet Pluto and its moons. It's zipped by Pluto, and it's still going into the Kuiper belt on the outer edges of our solar system. New Horizons is changing our view of the solar system and our understanding of how the planets were formed with each transmission it sends back to Earth. A key player in NASA's New Horizons project is the planetary scientist Alan Stern. He's like the CEO of this initiative, and he joins us now to tell us more about what they're finding and how this mission got underway. He details the whole story in his new book, Chasing New Horizons. Alan, thanks for joining us. Thanks, Rick. It's great to be here. So this New Horizons, I understand it was launched in 2006... It swung past Jupiter for a, what you call a gravity boost on its way to Pluto, and now it's way beyond Pluto, rocketing through the Kuiper belt. What is New Horizons, and, and what's your role in this mission? New Horizons is both the name of the project funded by NASA and the spacecraft that the project built to make the first explorations of Pluto and the Kuiper belt, as you said. Hmm. We began the project in the, the year 2000, and we were in a competition, which we ultimately won against some very strong competitors and were selected by NASA to design and build the spacecraft and then fly it across the solar system. My role is to lead the project in all aspects of it. It's flying at, did I understand, 32,000 miles per hour. That's just hard to conceive. How fast is that? Well, that's very fast. You know, in the time since you began speaking, New Horizons has flown close to the distance from L.A. to New York. (laughs) (laughs) Whoa. Well, the milestone was Pluto. 
Can you describe the flight to Pluto? What did New Horizons do between Earth and Pluto? Yeah, well, it sounds like science fiction, but it's not. Uh, New Horizons left Earth, left from Florida on a Thursday in January of 2006 and crossed the entirety of our solar system to the very frontier at Pluto. We did that by uh, first entering Earth orbit very briefly, flying to the mathematically calculated point to fire off to the planet Jupiter, the largest planet in our solar system. Uh, About 40 minutes after we left the launch pad in Florida, we were out of Earth orbit and hurtling towards Jupiter so fast that we crossed the orbit of the moon nine hours after launch. Mm. For reference, Apollo missions, it took three days. We did Mm. it in 0.3 days. Half a billion miles later, 13 months later, in the end of February 2007, we got that gravity boost from Jupiter and then set off on an eight-year, two-and-a-half-billion-mile journey across this enormous expanse between Jupiter and Pluto. And during that time, our flight team, which only numbers about 50 men and women, was busy flying the spacecraft, planning the flyby of Pluto and all the backup plans. And that all took place in 2015, beginning in January and concluding in July of 2015 with the first exploration of Pluto and its system of moons. So, Alan, when you say the first exploration, I know that New Horizons is sending back photographs, but what else does it send back as you, quote, explore without actually touching down? We always start with missions that are the least expensive type. There are reconnaissance mission type called a flyby, meaning mm-hmm. you go past the object. You don't stop to orbit or to land. They're much less expensive, and they're the way that we get the lay of the land, if you will, using mm-hmm. our cameras composition spectrometers, atmospheric sensors, other kinds of devices, so that we get a full picture, not just of what the joint looks like, but also what it's Hmm. made of, how it works, what it weighs, what's its temperature, what's its atmosphere made of, how big is its atmosphere, other things. In the case of New Horizons, we carry eight scientific sensors, two devices that are cameras, with a total actually of nine cameras, between the two devices, color, different color filters, for example, panchromatic meaning black and white, longer focal lengths for higher resolution, wider angle to get big expanses in the shots. And then we also have two spectrometers on board. One measures the composition of atmospheric gases. The other measures the composition of solid surfaces. Hmm. And then we have a radio science instrument that can measure not just the masses of things, but also their temperatures and their radar reflectivity and can help probe the pressure and temperature structure in a planet's atmosphere, like Pluto's. Wow. And then we have some more esoteric devices called plasma spectrometers that actually sample the gases that are leaving Pluto's atmosphere, escaping. And we have on board the first ever instrument built entirely by students on a planetary mission. It counts micrometeorite impacts on the spacecraft, and we use that to trace out the density of interplanetary dust across the solar system. They're calling it the most exciting space mission in a generation. The journey of New Horizons is revealing mysteries on the fringes of our solar system. Dr. Alan Stern is the lead investigator of NASA's New Horizons project, and he's updating us on what the spacecraft is finding right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Alan writes about how the project came to be, along with his co-author David Grinspoon, in their book Chasing New Horizons. It's due out in paperback soon. This week's show notes include links to his website and book and to the stunning images of Pluto and Ultima Thule that New Horizons has taken. You'll find it at ricksteves.com radio. A billion miles later, you enter the 
Kuiper Belt. What is the Kuiper Belt? Kuiper Belt is the largest zone in our planetary system, and it wasn't even known until the 90s when planetary astronomers started to discover other objects orbiting out where Pluto is, mostly little things the size of counties or New England states. Pluto, for comparison, is like the size of the United States. Hmm. But also, we started to discover other small planets in the Kuiper Belt, Pluto's cohort, if you will. This is the third zone of our solar system. You know, the innermost zone is the rocky planets, Earth, Mars, Venus, and Mercury. Beyond that, the giant planets, Jupiter, Saturn, Uranus, and Neptune. Hmm. And then there's the Kuiper Belt that begins just beyond Neptune's orbit. And so actually, by the time we reached Pluto in the summer of 2015, we were already at the inner fringes of the Kuiper Belt. We will be in it, even traveling at this enormous speed that takes us 300 million miles plus every year. We'll still be in it for another 10 years from now. We're about halfway through it. Mm. In, in your book, Chasing New Horizons, Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto, you talk in length about the Kuiper Belt. You talk about this 20-mile by 10-mile wide rock that is of such interest. It's like two spheres connected. Did you actually know it existed, and was that actually on your itinerary when the New Horizon left Florida? <laughs> we, we did not know that Ultima Thule, the, name of, the nickname of this Kuiper Belt object, existed. We did know the Kuiper Belt existed, right. and we knew, we knew how many objects are out there. It's a little bit analogous to if, you know, in 2006, somebody said, I'm taking a trip to Paris and in 2019, <laughs> what restaurants should we pick? I'd say, you know, wait a while, we'll Call see me back when later. we get closer. There are lots of restaurants. And so we actually found our particular flyby target using the Hubble Space Telescope in 2014 okay. and then um, burned the engines after Pluto to redirect to go there in the fall of 2015 and then traveled three plus years another billion miles to make that flyby, which occurred on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day starting this year. You can actually steer this spaceship. I can't imagine what north, south, east, and west is up there, and there's no longitude and latitude. How do you navigate? How, how do you know where the heck you want to go and where you are going? It takes real expertise, and we have some of the world's best space navigators on the New Horizons team. A big team at a company called Kinetics, based in California, and we have a, uh, another team at the Caltech Jet Propulsion Laboratory. Mm -hmm. The way that we do this is essentially twofold. We track the position of whatever we're going to fly by next, either Pluto or Ultima Thule, using telescopes on the Earth and the Hubble Space Telescope to plot its course. And then by radio, we track our spacecraft so we know its course and then the job of the navigators is to make those two things intersect on a given day when the flyby takes place. Huh. And they can do it very precisely. I can tell you, hmm. flying from Pluto to Ultima Thule, which took three and a half years at 32,000 miles an hour, about a million miles almost every day, we ended up arriving at Ultima Thule only 23 seconds off <laughs> the predicted time. Whoa. I mean, I, f I take airliner flights. They're never within 23 <laughs> seconds. Our guest on Travel with Rick Steves is planetary scientist Alan Stern. He's the head of NASA's New Horizons mission. The space probe transmitted spectacular images of Pluto back in 2015, and it's now exploring the Kuiper Belt more than a billion miles beyond Pluto. His book is called Chasing New Horizons, and his website is alanstern.space. 
you were born in 1957. Now, that was the, this is so fun in your book, you explain this, this is the, the year Sputnik first orbited the Earth. And now, a little more than 60 years later, we've got New Horizons. It's exactly your lifetime. And it's like an evolution that's fit your career perfectly for this. Can you just trace the sweep of spaceflight from Sputnik and until today as uh, your spacecraft, New Horizons, is hurtling beyond Pluto? Sure. Well, you know, spaceflight is, um, in my view, it really was a 21st century enterprise that was born a little ahead of its time because of Cold War competition. Hmm. Uh, the two countries challenged each other to put the first satellite in orbit, and the Soviet Union won in 1957. And then the United States tried to catch up and very publicly blew its rocket up on national TV less than one foot off the launch pad. Hmm. It was humiliating. And President Eisenhower, as a result of that, created the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, NASA, in 1958. And, you know, NASA is now 60 years old and the premier space exploration agency on this planet. It has uh, put humans on the moon. It was first to reach every planet in the solar system and uh, uh, has many other accolades and accomplishments. The exploration of Pluto, the most distant planet ever explored, our job with New Horizons, is kind of the capstone to that first era mm-hmm. of reconnaissance of all the planets from Mercury and Mars and Venus that are closer to us all the way out to distant Pluto. Uh, most of it was done in the 60s and 70s and 80s. And then there was a long gap and uh, New Horizons came along and uh, put the cherry on top with Pluto. Chasing New Horizons does read like a thriller. <laughs> and, and, and NASA missions certainly are thrilling. What was launch day like in back in 2006? Well, you know, I've been involved in a lot of space missions, and so I'd been to a lot of launches and been uh, in charge of several missions that had launched previously. You know it all comes down to the success or failure on that day. We didn't have enough money to build a backup to New Horizons. There was no New Horizons 2. And so everything on that mission relied upon not just successfully firing the rocket all three stages to get us up to speed, but also to send us in the right direction very accurately because on board we have very little fuel to make up for uh, any errors that the rocket would have. Hmm. Uh, but it, it was a momentous day. The rocket worked absolutely perfectly hmm. and put us on the perfect course, and the spacecraft came off the rocket and was also working very, very well and has continued to perform essentially flawlessly all the way across the solar system. But that day was do or die. Wow. We're going to have a memorable day one yeah. way or the other here. Yeah, and you zip by <laughs> the moon in nine hours or whatever he said, and then a little while later you do that little uh, roller derby trick where it swings around Jupiter and you pick up 5,000 miles an hour. And then after nine years you finally get coming into Pluto, and then in your book you write about communications go dark, and it's like all hands on deck. Yeah, well, and the book actually starts off with this story, 10 days from reaching Pluto after a journey of well over 3,000 days. We had our first big in-flight anomaly. I'm sitting in my office just a half mile from Mission Control out in Maryland. My phone rings, and it's the project manager. Day-to-day manages the project for me, Glenn Fountain. And I knew he was taking the day off because it was July 4th. Why is Glenn calling me today? Hmm. Uh, He should be taking the day off having some barbecue or something. And uh, I picked the phone up. I could tell before he could get a sentence out, his voice was very low and very serious. And he said, Alan, we've lost contact with the spacecraft. Oh my goodness. 
that's like the worst thing that can happen. You know, it's worse than getting error messages that tell you that it's leaking fuel or the computer's reset. If you've lost contact, you know, not only don't know what happened, your first assignment is now to regain contact. And so I immediately went over to mission control and we called up everybody on the engineering team and on the flight control team that was off for the holiday. They came in and helped diagnose the problem within 90 minutes, but it took a long time to get control of the spacecraft again and then to get it prepared for the flyby of Pluto. And of course the clock was ticking. Mm -hmm. The flyby was supposed to start in just three days. All those people were so dedicated to this project that they stuck around, never left, slept on desks and in chairs and some of them weren't even sleeping for three days straight until we got it back on flight plan and um, ready to do this. And then, I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody, the flyby of Pluto was completely successful. Mm. And you know that's now history almost four years ago. What a relief that must have been for all of you that dedicated so much to this. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking with Alan Stern. He's the CEO of the New Horizons Project, the first mission to Pluto. When we think of NASA... It's a lot of money. Just ballpark, how much money has been dedicated over this last decade or even more for the New Horizons project if you were to ballpark it? Well, I can tell you the uh, cost of the project from soup to nuts, from designing it to building it to buying the rocket and everything else we needed to flying it all the way across the solar system and then on past Pluto to do the Kuiper Belt exploration is just a little under $800 million dollars. Let me put that in perspective. First of all, the Voyager probes that NASA sent out in the late 70s to explore Jupiter out to Neptune cost about five times that much. We're very proud of the fact that we have invented a way to do it, basically for two dimes on the dollar. That's remarkable. I would have thought it would be much more. It's less than a football stadium by a factor of (laughs) several. And if you bought the Time magazine about New Horizons back when we flew by Pluto, you spent more on the purchase of that Time magazine than all of your tax contributions to New Horizons over the entire well, that's a good way to put it. years. New Horizons is going and going and going. I guess it doesn't go forever. When does it actually run out of steam, and uh, how will that happen? New Horizons is, as I said a little earlier, it's traveling very fast, and it's leaving our solar system. It, it will never come back. As a physical object out in space where it's empty, actually the spacecraft will probably outlived the earth because someday in a few billion years when the sun becomes a red giant the earth will be turned into a cinder Mm -hmm. by our own star but new horizons like the voyagers is going to be out there between the stars and protect it it will still exist after the earth doesn't but the lights will go out on it and it'll just be hurtling by its own inertia right exactly and it'll be derelict in fact it'll be derelict uh, probably in something like 20 or 25 years We only have the power on board in our nuclear battery to run the spacecraft sometime into the mid or late 2030s. That's another 20 years, maybe. And then after New Horizon has gone dark, it keeps going. It's going to be sort of a a very, very crude early symbol of space pioneering from a little speck in the universe called Earth. Isn't that amazing? (sighs) I love it. Sometimes when we were building the spacecraft, I would stand next to it in the clean room. I remember one night when I was the last person around the vehicle, and I was thinking about exactly this, and I was looking at it, and I said, this will not just outlive our civilization, it will outlive our planet. It's just an almost incomprehensible reality. Must be a thrilling thing to be spearheading this uh, impressive operation. 
Alan Stern, the book is Chasing New Horizons, Inside the Epic First Mission to Pluto. Thank you so much for joining us, and best wishes with your work. Thanks, Rick. Coming back to Earth, a fine place to enjoy the beauty of our planet is in the lovely gardens you can enjoy in and around London. Two expert guides from England join us to take your calls at 877-333-RICK. Let's explore the gardens of London next on Travel with Rick Steves. I think one of the great pleasures of our good Earth is enjoying the beauty and appreciating all the hard work that goes into making a great garden display. The English seem to have perfected gardening into a fine art. I like how they bring green spaces that everyone can enjoy right into the heart of the city. That's why London is so appreciated for really top-notch public gardens and botanical collections. Tour guides Elizabeth Boardman and Jeannie Carmichael join us now with their expert advice on gardens that you should plan to visit next time you're in London. They'll take your calls in just a bit at 877-333-7425. Jeannie and Liz, thanks for being here. Thank you, Pleasure. I just love this notion that London is a massive city, but it also claims to be the greenest city in all of Europe. Possibly in the world, Rick. 47% of London's area is green space. Green space. And we have 3,000 gardens. These are not just uh, parks, but these are gardens, because from my experience, the English love to garden. We love our gardens, Rick. We tend to compare ourselves with our gardens as Americans with their cars. I like that. Well, that's pretty impressive because we love our cars. (laughs) So, Jeannie, if you're thinking about a great example of a garden somebody might want to visit to make their visit to London a little more fragrant and relaxing, what would it be? Well, one of my very favorite gardens is the Chelsea Physic Garden. Have you ever been there? No, Chelsea Physic Garden. Yes, it's on the River Thames, Uh and it was founded in the 17th century as a place where doctors could come and learn about different medicinal plants and herbs. And all of these plants and herbs are labeled, and it tells you what they're useful for. What so illness they will the experience cure. is, as a tourist, we would go in there and we'd see these, just like 300 years ago, doctors Absolutely. would come here and, and you'd see them labeled about what their name is, the Indeed. Name whatever, and then what medicinal purposes it Absolutely. is. Absolutely. I find that fascinating. It is beautiful. And where is that? That's in Chelsea on the river. Okay. It's five minutes walk from where the Chelsea Flower Show is. So the Chelsea Physic Physic Garden, Garden yes. Nice. Liz, what's another garden we might want to be aware of on our trip to London? Well, I think for many of us, you've probably heard of the Royal Botanic Gardens, but these are also known as Kew Gardens. Ah, yeah. And Kew Gardens is one of these visits that you can do any time of the year. In the spring, they've got millions of bulbs that come into bloom, and we've got the cherry blossom tree, which is just fabulous to see. In the summer, again, with this full riot of colour, and by the autumn, it's stunning. But one of the new things that they've actually created there is actually the glass walkway, 18 metres high. You can actually get a beautiful perspective. Oh, a glass walkway up? That's what, 18 metres? That, that would be 60 feet yes. above the ground. and it's 200 metres long, and you're looking down on some of the horse chestnut trees, some of the oak trees, a completely different perspective. 
I love that. Now, is that in the open or is that under a uh, glass? That's in the open. Oh, okay. But again, with Kew Gardens, we tend to think of those beautiful Victorian greenhouses, I the glass houses. Because you go in there and it's a, it's a trip to the tropics. Exactly. And again, another reason why it's all season. It's beautifully warm in there. So in the, in the dreary dead of winter, <laughs> you take a, a little trip out to Kew from London, easy to do. You can pretend you're in the Caribbean. <laughs> and, and each greenhouse has, I, I remember there's a water lilies section. There is. There's a carnivorous plant section. <laughs> and there's just this very, very uh, humid, um, mucky, hot, tropical, thick That's jungle exactly you go through. It's transporting you to a different side of London and a different perspective with us with our gardens, not the type of thing that right. we tend to, obviously, we can grow ourselves, yeah. but to be able to see them, we've got the Victorians to thank So that for goes that. back to Victorian times, basically yes. 150 years ago, and it, it gives you just an inkling of how sophisticated Victorian society was and how tuned into the world and nature and science they were. Definitely, and it's a connection with us today. You know, we have really Prince Albert, Queen Victoria's husband, to thank a lot for some of the magnificent gardens and throughout the UK, the arboretums that we have as well. So when we think of Victorian times, Queen Victoria ruled a long, long time. How many years? 70 years or something like that? 70, if not. Yeah. She died just around the turn of the century, right? Definitely. 1900. The last half of the 1800s, Victorian. Yes. A great tip when you go to Kew Gardens is to pick up the seasonal sheet in the beginning so you know what's blooming now. Because yes. Because it depends on what month where you really want to be. Exactly. You know, at the beginning we were saying it, it really is a visit for all seasons, right. but there's going to be things that are, are coming in bloom. Laburnums in the You can the get March. there by boat, can't you, from downtown London? Yes, you can, just along the Thames. Cruising, Beautiful way cruising to up enter. the Thames. Beautiful way to enter. I love it. It's a great place to relax and rendezvous in the city. We're looking at our favorite gardens in London right now on Travel with Rick Steves. Our guides are Liz Boardman and Jeannie Carmichael. Jeannie, what's another garden we'd want to check out? Oh, I absolutely love Holland Park. Holland Park. Now, I know that because I stayed in the youth hostel there for many, many years. <laughs> yes. The Holland Park Youth mm-hmm. Hostel. Well, you and know then what a fabulous place it is. I used to walk through that garden. There was oftentimes a, a game of cricket going on. Well, it, it used to be the estate of Lord Holland. Okay. When you stayed in the youth hostel, you remember it was built on the side of that ruined stately home? Uh-huh. Which dates to the early 1600s. That's right. Yeah. Okay, so what are we going to see in Holland Park? Oh, what is wonderful about Holland Park? It, it's planted in different ways. The, the north of the park is quite wild. Uh-huh. Then you have beautiful sort of manicured beds and lawns. But my favorite part of it is the Kyoto Garden. Um, in 1991, Prince Charles got together with the Crown Prince of Japan. So this is like Kyoto, the city yes, in Japan. Yes, absolutely. Okay, right. And uh-huh. they invited gardeners to come from Kyoto. Ah. Who couldn't speak a word of English, and they worked with the English gardeners and just pointed and pushed. But I bet the gardeners kind of spoke they, a similar they spoke language garden of their talk. own. Garden that was talk. fine. Yes, <laughs> nice. and they've created the most exquisite Japanese garden. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're celebrating the gardens of London. We've been to Chelsea Physic Garden, Holland Park Garden, and Kew Garden. We're joined by guides Jeannie Carmichael and Liz Boardman. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. And Linda's calling in from Rochester in Minnesota. Linda, have you enjoyed any of the gardens in London? I have. I enjoy all the gardens in the UK, Rick. My question would be, I was surprised by a hidden waterfall in Regent's Park and the roses at the Queen Mary's Garden. The roses weren't blooming. I was there in May. So what's the best time to see the roses in in bloom? I would say June, 
And some years ago, I was lucky enough to lead um, a tour with the American Rose Society. And they said to me that those were some of the most beautiful roses they had ever seen. And where exactly were those? That's in Regent's Park in the Queen Mary Rose Gardens. So June, July. But of course, as you know, it depends on the weather, doesn't it? Now, there's a rose garden in Hyde Park also, I yes. believe. Kind of close to um, Herod's on that side. Yes. Mm-hmm. And uh, you'll, you'll see this. And it's just lining the road. And you can pop in there and it's a delightful place. I, I used to buy my takeaway lunch from Harrods, and I would eat it in the Rose Garden there in Hyde Park. It was wonderful. <laughs> when you go to London and you're interested in flowers, I think the Chelsea Flower Show is, is quite a hit. The Chelsea Flower Show, I've been there two years and, uh, in a row, and one thing I learned is if you join the Chelsea organization, you can get in as a member, and you get a monthly magazine. Um, they even mail it to the States. And the money then goes to support a good cause. The first time I went, I was on sensory overload between the smells and the sights, the colors. I had never been to anything like it. It's worth knowing about the Chelsea Flower Show if you love flowers, and uh, it's, it's probably like nothing you've ever seen. It is. It's nothing like you've ever seen. And then as a member, there are also other flower shows um, if you're in the country through different times of the year that the car gets you in many times for free. Linda, is the Chelsea Flower Show just uh, once a year? What is the season for that? It's in May, the second or third week in May. Linda, thanks for your call. Thank you. Dean's calling in Shoreline, Washington. Dean, have you been to the gardens in London? Um, yes, I have, Rick. What is your favorite memory? One of my favorite memories of London's gardens is in Kensington Gardens. I was actually in the Army in London for six months, and I got to walk through Kensington Gardens each day to the school that I was going to. One of the fun stories that I had heard about Kensington Gardens was the Peter Pan statue that was there and that the Peter Pan statue had been put up overnight so that in the morning it would be a surprise for the children there in London. Well, that's a sweet story. So that's one of my stories. And then the other one that I liked was the Forsythia displays in Kensington Gardens because the superintendent of the Kensington Gardens was Mr. Forsyth from Scotland. Anyway, he was in charge of sending out expeditions for the British to get new plants to bring back to Britain and everything. And he got to name one of the plants after himself? Somebody did, yes. For Scythia, for Mr. Forsyth. Yes, and there are huge banks of the Forsythia there in Kensington Gardens at the right time of the year. So now, when you go to London, you've got Kensington Palace, which is quite famous, but the gardens itself are quite nice. There's an orangery there, I believe, where you have a tea. Lovely afternoon and tea, Jeannie, yes. can you talk about the afternoon tea at Kensington Park Gardens? Oh, it's a proper traditional afternoon tea with thinly cut cucumber sandwiches. Oh, talk scones. dirty to me. <laughs> Slathered with clotted cream and Say jam. more. <laughs> <laughs> Yummy cakes. Oh. Lashings of tea. <laughs> it's fabulous. Surrounded by London's most elegant plus tourists. Indeed. It's a great tea mm-hmm. at the Orangery next to Kensington Palace. Indeed. What else would we find in Kensington Park? Of course, there's the Princess Diana Fountain. Explain. Well, when the princess passed, we thought long and hard as to a really good memorial for her. Mm-hmm. The first one was actually a children's playground in Kensington Park. Uh-huh. 
And because J.M. Barry, the writer who wrote Peter Pan, lived on the edge of the park... Oh, that would make sense. That's why um, he actually was inspired to write Peter Pan mm. by meeting five little boys in mm. the park. Peter was a real boy, and the lost boys are his brothers. For, for Princess Diana fans, we've got this uh, yeah. special white garden dedicated Absolutely. to honour her. We've got uh, Mary Poppins lore, and also there's an Italian garden there. Oh, I it's beautiful, the Italian garden. That's in the north of the park. People tend to miss that, and yeah. it's exquisite. So much to see. Hey, Dean, thanks for taking us to Kensington Gardens. You're welcome. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're celebrating the Gardens of London, and we're joined by two London guides, Jeannie Carmichael and Liz Boardman. Liz, when I go to Buckingham Palace for the changing of the guard, St. James Park is right there. And all the mobs of people come in to see the changing of the guards, and they mob back out, and they miss St. James. They're missing a treat. They are really missing a treat. As you said, St. James's garden is actually between Buckingham Palace and Trafalgar Square, right in the centre of London. An oasis of greenery and a little bit of tranquility. There's nothing better than to just get some light lunch and sit in that St. James's Park. Because there's a little lake. There's the lake there. We've got pelicans on the lake. Delightful birds. In fact, they actually do a special feeding of the pelicans at 2.30 from Duck Cottage, which is in the park itself. So those are the little tidbits of information that that make a visit nicer. And plus the fact, if you've taken your lunch down there, if the weather's good, you're in the middle of this beautiful greenery. There's obviously the plants in bloom as well, depending on the seasons. You can be looking at Buckingham Palace. You can be looking at Horse Guards Parade. You Mm -hmm. can see the Millennium Wheel going Mm -hmm. around. You're in the middle of London, but you're out of all the hustle and bustle. There's a dimension to London that really is one of a kind as far Mm. as people-friendly elegance with nature and your heritage. You find these rather overlooked unappreciated monuments that really should be more celebrated as you go through the parks to a lot of monuments. There's so much woven together in these parks. Jeannie, how about gardens that are incorporated into architecture? To celebrate our Olympics, you see, we took an area of what had been really dirty, polluted industrial land, 500 acres of it, knocked down the industry, dug up all the soil, washed it in huge industrial washing machines, extracted the poisons, put the soil back and planted it as the most fabulous new park with lots of sporting buildings in it as well, of course. And what's this called? It's called the Olympic Park, the Queen Elizabeth II Park. And you can get there in 10 minutes on the underground from London. Now, they asked who is arguably the world's greatest gardener called Piet Mondrian. He's a Dutch genius to come and advise, as well as English gardeners. And there's all different kinds of planting there. But there's also, you can go into all of the sports venues, there's a very tall sculpture in the park called the Orbit, and you can go up the Orbit, and the world's longest slide comes down from it. You put on a helmet, and you whiz at high speeds down the slide. I did that to celebrate my 21st again birthday recently with 10 friends. You guys are filling me with desire to go back (laughs) to London, because I thought I knew the city so thoroughly, and there's all these one. A lot of them are new, like the Olympic Park. Mm -hmm. And what a heroic effort and beautiful nature. You can swim in the Olympic pool. This is gorgeous, the Olympic Park. And Liz, give us another example of a a creative mixing of modern architecture and people's opportunity to enjoy a park. I'd really like to tell you about the Sky Garden. The Sky Garden is a little hidden gem as far as I'm concerned. The official address is number 20 Frenchurch Street, but many of us know the building as the walkie-talkie. Obviously, we like to nickname our buildings. Oh, yeah. Is that and it's a skyscraper. that looks like an old walkie-talkie? That's the one. Okay. Yeah, that's the one. And at the very top is actually the Sky Garden. 
Now, the Sky Garden has been created like a huge conservatory, and there are bars there, there's restaurants there, but you're 38 stories up. The views are 360 degrees across London. Uh, the most beautiful thing about it, it's free. It's free? It's free. Because it, to go up to some of the skyscrapers in London cost exactly. £20 pounds or something. Just across the Thames from the uh, Sky Garden, you've got the Shard. And right, as you to said, to, to get the lift to the top of the Shard, you'd be talking of about £25. Pounds. But you can go to the Sky Garden, you can be looking at the Shard, you're looking down on the River Thames. So you Thames. get out your walkie-talkie. <laughs> Sky Garden, top of walkie-talkie. <laughs> How many floors up? 38 stories. 38 stories up. It's free. It's, it's free. free. But the... again, book tickets in advance. Oh, book tickets in advance. That's <laughs> yeah. a great advice. And I do understand when you're building a skyscraper, if you're messing up people's sight lines or if you're taking a lot of uh, real estate up, you have to provide the public kind of a park or some kind of a view access and so on. You do. Just outside of St. Paul's Church, there's a big modern office park. Do you know about this park? Yes, New Change. New Change, that's right. Absolutely. High-speed lifts, and they whiz you to the top. So you're looking at St. Paul's, and you're kind of stretching your neck up, and then you realize, oh, wait a minute, I'll go across the street, whisk yourself up to this, and there's a little... it's free. It's sort of an astroturf green area. Yes, indeed. And there's an elegant cocktail bar there, and you're welcome to enjoy the view looking over at the dome instead of up at the dome. And it saves you climbing up the 526 steps. Now that's that's (laughs) a very nice tip right there. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking parks in London with Jeannie Carmichael and Liz Boardman. And Jeannie, with all of this excitement about parks, there's a new museum in London, I believe, dedicated to the history of gardening. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. Well, the museum itself is not new, but it's just reopened after a £12 million refurbishment. There you go, yeah. And it was an old church just across the river from the Houses of Parliament. But it lost its congregation, so they've turned it into the Museum of Garden History. Across from the Halls of Parliament. Yeah, just the other side of the river, close to the Imperial War Museum. You could walk there from, oh, gosh, from Big yes. Ben, yeah, t- ten easy. minute walk from Big yeah. Ben. And this is the Museum of Garden History. And what are you going to find? Oh, it's beautifully done. It walks you through the history of garden design. And it explains to you how different plants were brought into this country over the passage of time. It tells you about famous gardeners. Oh, this new development built onto it, it's exquisite architecture on an old church. Oh, it's wonderful. And all these gardens in London are are not a new thing. For centuries, thoughtful people, powerful people, um, people who are interested in botany have had this passion for plant life all over the planet, and it comes back to London. Indeed. You know, the sun never sets on the British Empire, and uh, the sun never sets on all the amazing plants and flowers that you can experience in London if you know where to go. Uh, well, Kew is the place for that because for sure. the explorers brought back plants that have died out in their own country. And they so live Kew in is a living museum of plant life. It's mind-blowing. This has been a wonderful conversation. Jeannie Carmichael, Liz Boardman, thanks so much for sharing a little bit of a more green and relaxing side of London after all of the heavy museum going and all the traffic and crowds we endure to see those great attractions. It is nice to know that even in one of the most demanding and earth-shaking cities on our itinerary, we can take a moment and enjoy the natural beauty of things in a park and in London. There's no shortage of that. Thanks so much for being with us. Our pleasure. Thank you. Travel with Rick Steves is produced by Tim Tatton and Isaac Kaplan-Wilner at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to KG&U in Boulder, Colorado for studio help and to Lisa Gray for editing help this week. 
You can listen again whenever you like and link to our guests in the website notes for each week's show. And when you're traveling, you can also find out when other stations air Travel with Rick Steves. It's all at ricksteves.com radio. And we'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. At Rick Steves Online Travel Store, you'll find guidebooks for London and for England, Scotland, Ireland, and Great Britain. To learn more about Rick's guidebooks, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.